Good evening. It's good to see you this Wednesday evening as we uh, continue our discussion that we started last week on critical race theory and uh, related issues to that particular social construct. As people of the truth, people who are committed to the fact that all systems, theories, perspectives must be evaluated and responded to positively or negatively based on God's word. The Olympics is a battle of kingdoms. We're on the verge of the Olympics where kingdoms will be in conflict. That is, athletes will represent their nations on the field of competition in the Olympic Games. Whether they are black or white, one thing is clear, and that is they will not simply be individual athletes. They will be individual athletes, but they will be individual athletes underneath a flag. That flag represents the country, i.e. the kingdom, that they represent on the field of play. The gold medalist will not be asked, what's your favorite song? What song would you like us to play in honor of your victory? They will automatically play the national anthem of the nation that the gold medalist represents because while they are individuals, they run as part of another kingdom. You and I belong to another kingdom. No matter what your race or your color, your gender, you are, I am, we are to represent that kingdom against the kingdoms that would seek to compete with our kingdom. It is unfortunate today that we have many Christians running for other flags. They're confused about which kingdom they belong to. And therefore they get caught up and confused about the various movements in the culture today, and we could go over a lot of them. The issue we're focused on is the issue of race. We define CRT, critical race theory, as the post-civil rights social construct that seeks to demonstrate how unjust laws have served as the embedded foundation and filter through which racist attitudes, behavior, policies, and structures have been rooted throughout the fabric of American life and systems even after those laws were changed. So to simply state it, CRT says that unjust laws were established. Those unjust laws, when they were established, filtered into all of American life, education, the media, the medical world, the legal world, those laws filtered in. The laws changed and unjust laws became just laws. 1964, civil rights laws. 1965, the voting laws. The laws that were unjust changed. But the effect of many of those laws remained in those structures in which they filtered when they were unjust laws. So that even though we now have more righteous laws, there is still negative repercussions from when the laws were unjust. And critical race theory seeks to do an analysis of how those laws still have an abiding effect on racial relationships and racism in the country today. So it's focused on the legal side of things and its effect. Now that is the essence or the foundation of how CRT was established by its original authors. The problem came, as I said last week, that other things got connected to that. Black Lives Matter got connected to it. 
then uh, also getting uh, connected to it is the 1619 Project. 1619 Project says America was not founded in 1776. It was founded in 1619 when the first slaves came. And uh, that was the founding of America so that the reason that America was existing was to preserve slavery, not to be independent from the tyranny of England. So it, it changed the definition. It got plugged in the CRT. Black Lives Matter, both as a movement and an organization, got plugged in the CRT. Marxism, socialism, got plugged in the CRT. Many of the proponents of CRT come from a Marxist framework because it is driven from liberal educational institutions. All of that got plugged in the CRT. When CRT got all of this new uh, plugs plugged into it, it now became a much bigger issue. And now you see the battles taking place about our schools are teaching racism, our schools are teaching socialism, our schools are teaching hatred. And now you've got this battle going on because CRT has gotten much bigger than where it initially started on the legal issue and now has affected the racial environment of our country. And so this goes on and on and on and it will continue to go on and on because while CRT tries to do an analysis or the solution that it offers are often not consistent with a biblical worldview. So I hope that gives you a framework to simply grasp what we're talking about when we talk about critical race theory. It basically is looking at systemic racism's presence due to unjust laws that have been changed but still are made manifest. Let me give you a spiritual analogy to this process. A spiritual analogy. The Bible says that you and I were born with a law. It's called the law of sin and death. We are born in this law of sin and death. He talks about it in Romans 8. So that we have dead spirits and we have damaged souls and we possess a sin nature and we operate under that law. That's a law. When you accept Jesus Christ, the law changed. You're now not under the law of sin and death. You're now to operate under the law of the spirit. So Paul talks in chapter seven of Romans about this law that keeps him bound to sin. And then he comes to chapter eight of Romans and he talks about this new law, the law of the spirit. So when you accepted Christ, a new law was put inside of your soul because your spirit came alive to Jesus Christ and you now have a new law. The problem is that the old law doesn't want to let you go. The law of sin and death. Because the law of sin and death infiltrated your flesh. The law of sin and death infiltrated your flesh so we still battle with sin even though we change laws so we change laws but because of the sin nature we had under the old law our flesh our desire to please self independently of God still battles with the effects of the old law so part of spiritual growth is learning how to live under the new law because of the abiding effects of the old law when we were underneath that law, even though the law has changed. Is everybody following me? So we're now in a process of spiritual growth, a process of spiritual development, a process of discipleship to learn to live underneath the new law. Now, some people learn to live under it quickly. Some people learned to live under it slowly. Some people were so tied to the old law of sin and death and it owned them so much that they live in perpetual uh, handcuffs 
to the old law because it had embedded it so much and so deep in how their thinking goes and how their soul operates. So it is the old laws of racial division, segregation, Jim Crow, criminal leasing, peonage, all of those structural rules that people operated by that perpetuated racism in America, those laws changed, but the process of exiting the effects of those laws often doesn't come easy, particularly if you were raised with the influence of those laws by your parents or by the society in which you live. So a, uh, we'll call it a, um, a racial sanctification needs to occur, okay? A racial sanctification where people grow out of the effects of the old law. So if you just take your spirit, that spiritual principle and apply it to the racial situation, you can understand what critical racism is trying to address, and that is the old law's effect in the new reality of our uh, racial existence like it does in our spiritual existence. So even in our audience today, people have, a, have been affected by this differently. Some people are very edgy about it because of how it used to be with them growing up or situations. Others aren't as bothered about it because you didn't have to face it much and so it's not an issue for you because sanctification, transformation occurs at different strokes for different folks over time, okay? So, it is in this context that I have proposed, and this is how I ended last week, uh, a new um, process for Christians to address this issue. I call it KRT. Kingdom race theology. So I define KRT, kingdom race theology, as the reconciled recognition, affirmation, celebration of the divinely created ethnic differences through which God displays his multifaceted glory as his people justly, righteously, and responsibly function personally and corporately in unity under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So let's go back and pick up where I ended last time in Ephesians chapter two. The book of Ephesians chapter two. We explain that when Paul started the church at Ephesus, people came to the church with their histories. Gentiles had one race, the Jews another race, and these two races didn't like each other and couldn't get along. They were raised different, they were brought up different, they were taught different, they related to each other differently, they called each other names. All of that was part of the Jewish Gentile reality. It is in the midst of that that Paul tells them you're now saved, verses eight through and nine, by grace are you saved. He tells me in verse 10, you're saved for good works. And then verses 11 to 22, he explains to them that the good work that you should lead out in is the work of racial reconciliation. So if you are a believer in Christ, then you are required to be a reconciler. You are required, you're not asked, you're required to be a part of the healing solution to the social dilemma. We are not to allow the divisions of society to create divisions in the kingdom because you're operating under a new flag now. You're operating under the kingdom of God. So he spends all of these verses to explain this new reality. He says, remember you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. I said, 
last week, that's like somebody being called the N-word. You were called names. You weren't good enough because the Jews would call them because to be uncircumcised, man, you weren't good enough. So you are called the uncircumcision. He says, by the circumcision. So that's how the Jews call the Gentiles. You are separated, excluded, verse 12, strangers, having no hope. He says, you were, you, were, you were not allowed to be a full participant. And isn't that what some of the structures of racial division created and caused socially as he talks about it here spiritually. But then we hit these two words that I concluded with last time. He says, but now, but now. He already said in verse four, but God. So, but God, but now. Something has radically changed. And the division that you used to know that your mama taught you about, that your daddy taught you about, that your teachers taught you about, that the environment taught you about, it's a new day now. It's like the Emancipation, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, it legally represented a new day. When the laws were changed in 64, 65, it represented, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, a brand new day. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, you were, uh, you were outsiders, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is, now look at all the words, our peace, verse 14, groups into one, verse 15, two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Verse 16, reconcile them both in one body. Verse 17, preach peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, both groups. Verse 18, into one spirit. Verse 19, no longer strangers, but fellow citizens, an equal participant of God's household. Verse 21, fitted together and growing in a holy temple. Verse 22, built together. He talks about one, together, reconciled, peace. He uses all of those words to define this new relationship. The reason why I wanna point this out is that our focus is not on repairing something old, but creating something new. That this is the key. If you live your life trying to focus. Now you must know what happened in order to correct it. But if you spend your life critiquing what was old and that becomes your focus, rather than spending your, look at our human relationships. If you get in an argue with a person, particularly if that person is your mate, they liable to go historical on you in a minute, right? You be talking about one thing and they say, but you remember? Do you remember? And they, they will reach back in the history and bring that thing up, especially if it helps them right now in their argument. And they'll reach back historically and they'll grab yesterday and make it as fresh as today. What happens? The moment they do that, the problem is reignited. And the problem is fresh now because yesterday was brought up to today. Not because it happened today, but because uh, it's so locked in your mind, you couldn't escape it, and therefore it keeps the relationship in tension. He says, when you come to Christ, you are to be engaged in and you are to be involved in crafting something new, which he calls one new man. I think I may have said it last week, I'm not, I'm not sure, when an orchestra is warming up, it makes all these discorded sounds, just noises, you know? They're warming up all these different, all these different uh, 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 instruments and just making all kinds of sounds. They don't, they don't agree, they're not on the same page, it's just noise all over the place. Then the conductor comes out. The conductor takes his wand and tap, 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 
all of a sudden he gets silent. All these discorded uh, 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 sounds are no longer, you can't hear them. Then he raises his wand and he begins to, to direct and all of a sudden, all the differences are now playing the same song. The instruments didn't change. The music was all in harmony because once he showed up, what they were doing privately had to now blend in to what he was doing corporately. And because of his presence, it changes what you want to do with your instrument. You just can't do what you want to do with your instrument because the conductor has arrived. And once the conductor arrives, you got a sheet of music. And while your instrument is not playing the same notes that another instrument is playing, it is playing the same song. Jesus Christ has a kingdom song. And he wants all the different races, all the different colors, all the different cultures with their uniqueness, not giving up their uniqueness, to play this song. All through the New Testament, Paul has had to negotiate how the Gentiles were raised and how the Jews were raised. Gentiles ate pork chops. Gentiles ate pig feet. Gentiles ate chitlins. Jews didn't eat pork chops, chitlins. They, they didn't do that. That's not how they were raised. So Paul has to tell the Jews, stop trying to make the Gentiles eat what you eat. And he told the Gentiles, stop making the Jews try to eat what you eat. Just eat what you want to eat, but do it under the banner of your Christian commitment. So keep your uniqueness. I like to say, uh, God is not asking uh, whites to like soul music, and he's not asking me to like country and western, thank God. But what he is saying is, regardless of what you like, you are to bring those differences under my flag, under my authority. And that is a learning process. And the goal must be, am I contributing to creating something new or do I just keep staring up stuff that's old? Because if you do, or if we do, then we'll just be like the secular world out there they fighting and cussing and, and, and uh, uh, people who used to be friends, not friends anymore, because this thing has been whipped up into a catastrophic calamity in our culture. So we are involved in something new. That's why when you come to church, you're not just coming to hear the problems, you're coming to hear what Jesus' solution is. You're coming to hear what God's perspective is. And the worst thing you can do is to hear what God says and then go back and tell me how you were raised. That's the worst thing you can do, to tell me how you were raised when God speaks. We do that in our personal relationships and we most certainly do that in our racial relationships. When God speaks, you adjust your sheet of music. Now, it may not be easy. It may take you a moment to get used to it, but isn't that what happens in our Christian lives? You come to church, you find out God says something different than what you thought, and then you, you and God have to wrestle a little bit because what God's saying and what you're feeling and thinking and wanting, y'all ain't on the same page of music, okay? And let me tell you something about God's music. He doesn't change his sheets, okay? So I'm going to tell you now, he's not going to switch to make you feel better. He's he not going to do that. He is going to keep his standard and he's going to tell you that if you want him, you must adjust. Now here's what Satan is doing in the culture and here's what he's even doing in the church. He is intentionally keeping us divided and unreconciled. And he's good at it because he knows something about God. As we've said before, God is one unified being in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a pretzel with three holes, first hole, not second hole, second hole, not third hole, but they all tie together by the same dough. So one God composed of three co-equal persons and he knows God won't do one without the other because they're all unified. So wherever there is illegitimate disunity, God backs away. 
That's why he says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, you make this a high priority because Satan knows if he can get us illegitimately divided, because we ought to divide over sin or false doctrine, but if he can get us illegitimately divided, then the net result of that is God backs away because God can't function in disunity. And since God can't function in disunity, Satan keeps disunity stirred up because then it doesn't matter how much church you go to, how many songs you sing, how many prayers you pray, you can do all that spiritual stuff. But if it's in the midst of disunity, God backs up. So you won't get divine response. I think I shared this last week. Uh, you and your mate, if you're married, or you and a friend, y'all start arguing about one thing, and then y'all talking about something else that had nothing to do with where y'all started. And you wonder, well, why are we fighting about that when we started about this? Because Satan saw what you were fighting about, and he lit a fire under it to make it worse, to keep you disunified. There's some folks here who haven't talked to people in decades because of stuff that happened years ago. So you're tied into the historical, so you won't create something new. And so that's what he does to keep God away. He does that in our human relationships. And that's why Jesus says in John 17, verse 24, perfect them in unity, perfect them in unity. And then he says, so that they will see my glory. In other words, I'm only going to show up if they become one. And that's why we have to fight. The leadership of the church has to fight to maintain the unity. Some of you have been part of church splits. Those churches split because Satan has created something that brings about disunity. And he knows if he can disunify us, he wins. You don't know this, but in our elders meeting, there is not one time in 45 years where we have left the room disunified. Not one time. And one of the reasons when I'm asked, that doesn't mean we all see it exactly the same way, but when we come out, we come out as one. Because one of the reasons that I explain when people ask me, oh, quote unquote, what's the secret of what God has done over these years? One, I think it's a commitment to truth and commitment to his word, but our passion to stay unified. And because we are passionate about being unified, God is comfortable here. He can be at home here. This is true in your human relationships. If you will pursue reconciliation, let me give you another scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read a couple of things. Let's see, 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Ah, from now on, but now, we don't start with folks' external looks, their physical appearance. That's the flesh. We do not recognize people first and foremost as white, as black. We no longer start there, okay? Now, we don't deny people are different. Paul talks about the differences. But that's not where we start. We don't recognize, we don't identify them first according to their physical characteristics. Martin Luther King said it in the well-known phrase, we judge people by the content of the character, not the color of their skin. It's the same concept here. We do not look at people and recognize them first according to the flesh. Now notice what he goes on to say. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away, Behold, new things have come. So he keeps saying this stuff is supposed to be new, new, new. Now, all these things are from God. Oh, now he says, here's where you start. You don't start with the physical appearance, the color scheme. That's, that's obvious. It's recognizable. But he says you start with what comes from God. Because now the spiritual, here it is, takes precedence over the physical. If you could ever grab that, the spiritual takes precedence or precedence over the racial, the cultural, the class, and the spiritual. 
If Christians would just get that, it would forever change how we relate to one another. All things are now from God who reconciled us, here's our word, reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Whoa, did you all know here you're a minister? He reconciled us to himself and now he expects you and me to be a reconciler. So here's the question. Am I a reconciler or am I a combatant? Am I keeping things going? Am I contributing to what God has done for me? Reconciler, bringing harmony where there was conflict? Or am I one who keeps the fire burning of division? The more we are engaged individually, and in this case, collectively as a church, in the ministry of reconciliation, the more God is going to be with us because we were reconciled to him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is somebody who represents his nation in another nation. So guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to represent heaven on earth. You're supposed to represent eternity in time. So you're not to represent your blackness first. You're not to represent your whiteness first. Because your blackness may be of the devil. Your whiteness may be of the devil. You may be, you may be black, but you may not be beautiful. Because your perspective may have come from the devil. In the book uh, on, on race, that, that's already there, but I added some more names. I trace the black presence in the Bible. One of the things you should do is to show the black presence in the Bible so people get their pride from the word of God and not first from the culture, okay? The black presence in the Bible, uh, that's, I can go through that, it starts with, okay, Noah has three sons, right? Ham, Shem, and Japheth, okay? Those are colors, okay? Ham means dark or burnt, Shem means uh, dusk or brown. Japheth means bright or light. So Noah and his wife had three sons with three different shades. Well, the way you get three sons with three different shades is that mom and dad have to have different levels of melanin or skin color in them, like an interracial marriage. So like I have grandsons and, and, and my oldest grandson is dark. My second grandson is light because Priscilla and Jerry have different levels of melanin. And in one child, it was heavier one way. and another child, it was heavier in another way. So the same thing with Noah. Well, Ham's sons settled in Africa, okay? So uh, burnt, dark, that was Ham. So you trace Ham through Canaan, through Cush, and you can see the legacy of African people threaded through the Bible. The Bible talks about the dark skin of the Ethiopian, and it talks about people. It talks about the, the uh, African woman that Moses married in uh, Numbers chapter 12. It talks about the African wife that Joseph uh, married. It talks about the African uh, dark-skinned man who got Jeremiah out of the pit. It talks about dark-skinned people groups who are in the Bible. It goes on in the New Testament. And the first person to get the blood of Jesus on him was Simon of Serene. Serene is an African tribe. And so, so the first person who had the blood shed on him was an African. It says in the church, uh, Acts chapter 13, in the church at Antioch, it says there was Simeon the Niger, the black one was one of the elders in the church. You, you don't have to start with coming to America. You, you, you can go all the way back to the Bible and find plenty of reason for black pride, okay? So, 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 so if we can see, we can see the Bible got stuff in there that will blow your mind. And, 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 and so I, I, I trace that. And when I do, I bring up another guy. I bring up Nimrod. So let me tell you, let me tell you about Nimrod. Nimrod is the first 
great leader of civilization mentioned in the Bible, okay? He builds two great civilizations, Babylon and uh, uh, Assyria. And he is the leader. He is from the line of Ham. So he's from an African line. He's from the line of Ham. And coming from that line, he builds two great civilizations. There's only one problem. He's the one running the show at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So you can't be but so proud of Nimrod. You can say he was a great leader, but he was a great leader against God. So the issue in your skin color, the issue is are you on God's side with your skin color? And here's the creme de la creme. The creme de la creme is in the genealogy of Jesus. You got Rahab, okay? Well, Rahab is from the line of Ham through Canaan. You've, you've got uh, 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 David's wife, Bathsheba. She's from the Cushite. So guess what? Jesus got a little black up in him. Jesus got a little soul. Now, to be fair, before any of you other folk get upset, he is matismo. Matismo means multiracial because he just doesn't have that. He's got a little bit of Japheth, a little bit of a lot of Shem because that was Jewish, and he's got some African-American people. So, so you can put Jesus on the wall any color you want to because he can relate to any of them. All right. So what I'm trying to say is you can find pride starting with the Bible because the culture can mess you up depending on which person you're talking about with your color. Okay? So if I can get you and me and us to stick with the word of God, there's so much I could talk about. We're going weeks and weeks with this. But, but I, I, I want to get you thinking biblically. I want to get you thinking spiritually. I want to get you thinking, okay, and here's another one. Okay, now let me get something straight. Regardless of your social reality, you are not a victim. Let me say that again. To think of oneself as inferior, you must think of yourself as someone inferior to someone else. So then to think of yourself as inferior implies somebody else is superior. And the moment you place them in a superior category, you place yourself in an inferior category. Well, I just want you to know, the moment you come to Jesus Christ, he calls you an overcomer, more than a conqueror. So you may be being victimized, but you should never view yourself as a victim because now you have agreed with the evil because you have let it place you in a position God does not allow you to be in. You should be speaking this to your children, white or black. You're not an oppressor. You're not, the, you're not the oppressed, even though someone may be oppressing you. I'm talking about how you view yourself. You must view yourself through the eyes of God and not through the eyes of culture. Because now, if you think you're a victim, you start acting like one. If you think you're a victim, you start talking like one. You know, even in slavery, they talk about things that remind them of their victorhood, not victimhood. Uh, 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 I got shoes. You got shoes. All God's children got shoes. You know, they, they would start talking about things they didn't have. They would speak about things that weren't as though they were. See, that's what call, God calls us to do. So I, I, don't, I don't care how bad things look. I don't let how bad things look define how I'm going to look at them. I don't deny reality, but I'm not controlled by that reality that I see. Well, let me do some questions here or else I'd have another week where I didn't get to any. And then, because, you know, I didn't talk about uh, the... See, we got all kind of constructs going on now. They got this book, uh, Not My Idea. 
It's called Not My Idea. And it's a book for kids in elementary school. And the, the point of the book is the problem with whiteness. And what they're talking about is not whiteness as a color, but whiteness as a social construct. So what they're saying is whiteness is equal to being part of the oppressor group. And so they want these children to confront their whiteness in this construct. But a kid's not gonna know anything about a construct. They're gonna hear whiteness, they are white, so the parents are getting upset, of course, about the book because you just called my kid an oppressor. The other group is saying, well, I'm not talking about your kid's color. I'm talking about your kid's construct. Like the kid knows what you're talking about and the mama don't even know what you're talking about either. So now everybody's in conflict because everybody's starting in the wrong place. We're starting in the wrong place. And we need Christians that have enough spiritual guts and Christians who are committed to Christ who don't start where the culture starts. We don't deny the reality of race or racism or classism or culturalism or whatever the ism is, but you don't start there. We don't start with the flesh. He says we don't recognize people after the flesh. Okay, let me get to the questions. Okay, critical race theory. How should one respond to those who use CRT to oppose the teaching of the complete history of America's, including slavery, racism, and its true origin? Okay. What we need is people who will tell the whole truth about history. That's what we need. What, what the part of the problem is that history in many places has not been fully told. And because it's been fully told, people will skip over it and not deal with the dirty truth. It was slavery, its aftermath, the destruction of reconstruction and all the things that came off of it was a hideous evil. And you don't, skip, you don't not talk about Black Wall Street, the 300 lives that were lost there. You don't stop talking about Rosewood, Florida, and the, uh, the destruction of a whole town based on a lie. You don't start talking about the evil of Emmett Till and, uh, and the destruction that took place uh, because he whistled or something at a woman. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't skip the ugly part. God doesn't skip talking about sin, okay? He calls sin, sin. American slavery was sin, Exodus 21, 16. Anybody who kidnaps anybody else has committed a capital crime and is worthy of death. American slavery was predicated on kidnapping. If the preachers would have preached that, slavery would have stopped real quick because any of them who were participating would have been objects of death, okay? But people weren't telling the whole truth because they wanted to protect an economic lie. So in order to protect an economic lie, they wouldn't tell the truth. So you gotta tell the whole truth, but you gotta tell the truth on both sides of the track where there's an illegitimate. You gotta tell the truth about riots that tear down businesses and minority neighborhoods and people being shot and destroyed. And oh, you gotta tell the truth about that too. Why? Because Romans chapter three verses uh, 14 uh, to 18, talks about the evil of riots and the evil of arbitrary destruction. So we gotta tell that truth too. And we gotta say just cause it's black don't mean it's right. It's gotta fit the divine standard. It's gotta be the truth. So yes, we need teachers who will tell the whole truth so we don't need all these extra things out there uh, that is bringing about uh, all this confusion, okay? Uh, so why are so many people um, afraid of the critical race theory. Well, what they're afraid of is the division that it is causing. They are afraid that it is making, uh, well, black parents are upset with it too because it says you, you, this, this theory keeps making us victims. White parents are upset about it because you're making us oppressors simply because we're white. Originally, that's not kind of how it was designed, but that's how it has now morphed itself to be. Okay, so so that's why people are angry and now it's all convoluted. I am an elder at a very conservative Southern Baptist church uh, in Western Colorado. This part, what are you doing here? This part of the country, no, just kidding. It's so conservative. It's a conservative, okay, it's so conservative. Let's see. To me, the theory, CRT, uh, that racism is embedded in our social systems, I believe this is true. Some say this is theory is not biblical. Well, I just have showed you 
it's true in our own lives, that sin can get embedded and it's hard to shake depending on how deep it is rooted. And certain people raised a certain way, they're not going to give up on that easily unless confronted with the truth from God. You, you got to say, you're insulting God right now. Yeah, I don't like it, but let me tell you what God thinks about how you feel right now. You got to do what Paul did to Peter in chapter 2. He says, Peter, you are acting outside of the truth of the gospel. You're embarrassing Jesus right now. And I just spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention. I had 10,000 people out there. You can get it online. I had 10,000 people out there, and I'm speaking, and, I, and I, I talked about what the sins were and what needs to be corrected, and, and I, I confronted them right on it, how it was still being reflected in the church, my experiences, uh, what's happening today. Uh, I was in, a, I was in a Atlanta. Uh, I was in college in Atlanta. I walked into a white church. They let me know in no uncertain terms that you can't come in here. It was uh, uh, Colonial Hills Baptist Church in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, right out, in East Point, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And uh, they let me know. The church went into an uproar. One of my professors took me. Church went into an uproar, and then a couple months later, the church split because half the congregation wanted uh, uh, blacks to be able to come. The other didn't want it, and the church split. Many years later, many years later, they called me up, and that's after I'm on radio and all that. They called me up and said, on behalf of our leaders, our church split. It has never recovered from the sinful position we took when you came to visit our church. I want to apologize, and we want to ask, will you come speak at our church? So now am I going to say, oh, no, what y'all did to me wasn't right, and I ain't never going to forget it. I ain't going to forget it. I ain't going to let your children forget it, your grandchildren forget it, your great-grandchildren forget it. Uh-uh, I'm not going to take that picture. Why? Because I've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's why. Oh, and when I spoke at Southern Baptist Convention, it's funny, a man stood up while I'm talking. So I'm preaching at the Southern Baptist Convention. A man stands up while I'm talking. He shouts out in front of 10,000 people while I'm talking, Tony Evans for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay. I turned him down. Okay. 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 Um, the way you have, look, when you're in a war, you don't care about the color, class, or culture of the man fighting next to you as long as he's shooting in the same direction you are, right? How do we heal this? You know how we do it? We serve somebody else worse off than us together. That's what you do. You reconcile through service, not just by having more seminars. You reconcile because together we become repairers of the breach, Isaiah 58. We serve together. We worship together. We sing together. We pray together. We praise together, either within the church or with other churches. We do it together, and then we touch the community together so that people will see what reconciliation looks like in the world because we can show it off from the church, okay? Uh, can American brand of Christianity be called legitimate Christianity or is it simply patriotic religion? Well, one of the things I said at the uh, National Religious Broadcaster is that far too many of you have, have confused being a Republican with being a Christian. You have what, what we call, you have a nationalistic uh, religious order, what we call civil religion, because you've wrapped Christianity in the American flag. And, and no, Christianity stays above the American flag. Christianity sits above the American flag for the Christian. So we evaluate America by the, by the cross and by Christ and by the Bible. That's how we evaluate it. But listen to this. It also sits above black culture. So it sits above the American flag because what we often do is wrap Christianity in black culture. So you'll have people standing up at rap shows thanking God, thanking their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then start cussing like sailors, start talking about abusing, raping women, but then they're going to thank Jesus. So stuff gets wrapped the wrong way, and they leave the divine standard. Okay? Is America currently under judgment? Absolutely. 
We are experiencing the passive wrath of God. And the only hope is a radical return to God. This is not a time to be ashamed to be a Christian, ashamed to follow the Lord, and ashamed of God's word. I struggle with not wanting to be patriotic and not being proud of America. All right, let me, let me say something about this. But let me explain what you can easily be patriotic about. You certainly can't be patriotic about all the sins of the past regarding race. You can't be patriotic about that. But if I take you back to Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass said, that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are freedom documents that America has not lived up to. He said, the documents are perfect. The application is flawed. Martin Luther King said that America owes us a promissory note and we've come to collect. He affirmed the Declaration and Constitution. The, the magic of America is in the Declaration of Independence because it recognizes that there have been immutable rights granted by God that the government has been established to protect. That we have been granted by our creator. I'll just give you a down payment next week. Socialism wants to remove that because and the reason, there's only one reason socialism wants to remove it. Because as long as you can appeal to a higher authority than government, then government can't be God. So it has to deny religion so that government can be God. So wherever you see government stifling religious freedom, it is because now government does not want God competing with it. So you can be patriotic about the purpose of America. You may not be able to be patriotic about the practice of America. If you can make that separation, you can love the sinner and not the sin, if you can make that separation, then yes, you can put your hand over your heart and you can salute the flag because of what the Constitution and Declaration of Independence represents not what a particular person or a particular group has done in our history. So that's the distinction you need to make, okay? All right.